0: I'd invite you to go ahead and turn to um, the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke chapter 15 will be our text this morning as we continue in our series um, looking at the parables uh, from the Gospel of Luke. Um, We're in a series called Kingdom Secrets right now, um, and we are looking at select parables from the Gospel of Luke. And our effort in, uh, in looking at the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is uh, to uh, unfold and encourage uh, one another in the profound and in the simple, the eternal and revealed truths of God's kingdom that are set forth in the parables uh, for greater uh, um, dependency upon Jesus and to walk with greater obedience to Jesus. And so that's our series that we're walking through right now. And this morning we will be in the parable of the lost sheep and uh, the lost coin. Okay, um, Parables, as we've said every week, are great in the sense that Jesus it subversively plants the truths of the kingdoms in our hearts in a, with a simplistic uh, teaching and yet that has great depth to it to speak and confront um, the issues of our hearts that his kingdom may reign in us, but it also encourages us in the truths of the gospel. And so this morning, uh, we're going to go ahead and enter into uh, the the 15th chapter of Luke, and we'll read beginning in verse 1. Would you join me in reading God's word? Uh, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them a parable. What man of you... "...having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he's come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, "'Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost.'" Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And he goes on to tell a second parable. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors. Saying, rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. May God bless the reading and the hearing, the understanding, the applying and the obeying of his word this morning. And may it be true in us today as well. Um, Luke is, uh, Luke's gospel is a, a book that is full of comparisons. Luke is trying to draw several distinctions in uh, his account. And a lot of those uh, are found in some of the things he compares and contrasts. And so throughout the parables, you've seen uh, Jesus' Jesus's parables, and specifically um, um, even in the narrative that Luke is giving us, uh, he is comparing and contrasting some persons, some ideas, and some, uh, some standing. Here in this text, we will ha- as we'll see in a minute, Luke is contrasting two types of people. He's contrasting the sinners and tax collectors, those who would be seen as marginal uh, in, in society in, in that day, and he is contrasting the religious leaders, the religious um, elites, if you will, um, the Pharisees. And so not only is he contrasting the two people, but he's contrasting the two responses. We see here the tax collectors are drawing near to Jesus while the Pharisees and religious leaders are standing afar in unbelief, grumbling even. And so the two responses here are, one are hearing, the other are grumbling. And so grumbling, as we've dealt with here on a Sunday morning in a sermon uh, before, was a public expression of discontent. This is not kind of one of those like, you know the lines at the gas station is a little bit longer than normal and you kind of grumble under your breath or you have to go to the DMV, you know, kind of thing. This isn't kind of one of those quiet, you know, venting of frustrations to yourself. This is, a, this is expressed discontent publicly and emphatically, okay? And this is the language of unbelief that is vented and resounded throughout the crowds to resound and spread to others, and see so what you have are already. But as we set the scene that Luke gives us in the first three verses, you have two people: one drawing nearer to Jesus to hear in eagerness to from him, and then you have those standing on the boundaries, speaking the language of unbelief in public discontent and emphatically. And so, this word for grumbling is actually used in the Old Testament to express the idea of, uh, of guilt, uh, guilty unbelief, and disobedience. And so, throughout the Old Testament, we see this, uh, this word used. Um, for instance, it's used 10 times in the Exodus alone to describe the Israelites and their response to Moses, right? We don't have enough water. We don't have all that good food we had in Egypt. And, you know, on and on and on it goes. Then they get the bread and they're like, oh, you know what would be great? Some meat, man. Like that would be great if we could have this. And so on and on and on they have this, this complaint against Moses in their condition of their deliverance. And so as one commentator says on this issue, there are always some ground to grumbling. Okay, there's always some kind of grounds to it. Um, and he lists examples specifically in the Exodus. They had what? Lack of water. They had the, even the apparent unattainability of the promised land. Forty years they were there, right? Just kind of in limbo. Yet, So there was, there was grounds for it always, but the fault is always found when people turn grace into a claim and then complain against it when justice is not done to that claim. So, the real fault in the grumbling is not just an expression of frustration, but it's tied to unbelief in the sense that it's a substitution going on. That there's God's expectations being being separated and even even removed and, and exchanged for our own expectations. And so the root of the Pharisees grumbling at the onset of even before we get into the parable that Jesus deals with is that they were substituting God's character with their own expectations. Broken people were entering the kingdom and coming to Jesus, but these people were too messy for their tastes. And so the point of Jesus' parable is this. This is a joyous occasion for everyone. Get in on this welcome and join God in His rejoicing. Again, you see a contrast here, Luke's making between the grumbling of the Pharisees and the religious people and the rejoicing of the God they claim to know, and yet they are, themselves are not entering in, and so. Rather than rejoicing, being the language of God here and the language of faith, they were choosing the language of unbelief in their grumbling. So from the onset, we see already Jesus speaking to the very heart of the Pharisees, where their hearts were missing the kingdom. So anytime I come to a parable, I always want to... Jesus is usually... Indirectly dealing directly with an issue. And so I always like to ask: does the narrative set this up for us to know what, what is it Jesus is getting at here in his parable? What's he, what is he going for? And we see here, Jesus is what he's going for here is the reason behind the grumbling of the Pharisees. And that is that he is receiving sinners and eating with them, but yet they are grumbling. There are two other occasions um, that this happens. Luke chapter 5 and then also into chapter 7, you see the Pharisees coming to him um, and complaining that he's joined with uh, a woman of the city. He's in the house of Simon the Pharisee, and, um, and, and this woman comes and, and, and anoints his feet with oil and cleanses his feet and um, they're turned off by that also you've you've got in Luke chapter 19 the Zacchaeus story that we we're probably familiar with the wee little man who was eager to receive Jesus when he came into his house and Jesus was eager to come to his house and yet all who was a tax collector himself who would be seen as a traitor uh, 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 of the Israelite people who were working on behalf of the Romans who were overtake who would be seen to be overtaking them they're turned off by this, yet Jesus is eager to join in them. And so what is it that the Pharisees are so upset about that Jesus is speaking directly into? And that is that he is receiving and eating with sinners. So what is this that Jesus is doing when he's receiving and and eating with them is the question that looms in my mind. And the first one is, is this, as is we unpack kind of the scenario Jesus is in already before we get to the parable. And that is, in Jesus' receiving of sinners, he isn't just passively engaging them, you know, kind of like you stumble into an awkward relationship or conversation at the grocery store, you know. And it's just like, okay, I'll linger here until there's an appropriate way for me to kind of step out of this. It's not that sort of reception, somewhat semi casual, you know, kind of thing, just kind of a cordialness to it. But Jesus here, the literal word here for receiving is awaiting. So there's an anticipation behind his reception. He actually is looking forward to joining with them. It's not just a cordialness here. He's desiring with eagerness to join with them, accepting them even as they are as sinners. And so Jesus here is pictured as a stationary one being acted upon. The wayward are drawn near to him, and he eagerly awaits their coming. You see, Jesus awaits the wayward and the messy with expectation, and then he welcomes them. He's eager for you to return. He looks forward to, as one literal translation could read. So get this. The Pharisees knew, they they were kind of in the grapevine, right? They knew the reputations of all the people. They kind of knew everybody's junk, right? They knew the skeletons in the closet, right? Some of these were public knowledge Some of these not, but the Pharisees knew these sinners' misconduct and separated themselves from them. But yet Jesus, like in the occasion in the woman from the city who came while he was in Simon the Pharisee's house in Luke chapter 7, he knew not only their reputation, he knew not only their misconduct, but he knew the inward condition of their heart and yet welcomed them expectantly. And as Simon, the the Pharisee says, and the Pharisees in this occasion say, if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is who's touching him. And yet, oh, Pharisee, his message resounds, their sins are many. More than you know, and that is exactly the point. Jesus came to receive sinners, and he eagerly awaits them he looks forward to their coming so jesus receives sinners this offended the pharisees in many ways but then jesus also he eats with sinners he eats with sinners and so this isn't just kind of like again a casual encounter where well hey i gotta eat you gotta eat let's do this together kind of thing why not or you know those kind of things Eating together in biblical times was a sign of entering into communion with someone. And so eating together was a sign of friendship and deep fellowship as well. And so Jesus awaiting their coming is awaiting their coming. He's looking forward with expectation and eagerness. Yet we see here a picture of him lingering in celebration with them. He joins them in merriment and jovial camaraderie when they come to him. He's not just eager to receive them. When they come, he lingers with them. He's not turned off by them. But he lingers. He's the one, he's one of the the guest that you have to go to, to. Well, we're going to bed and we'll see you guys later, you know, kind of thing, if you've ever had those lingerers come around. The party just does not stop. We see here, again, one of the themes of Luke uh, is that he, bring, he, he gives an emphasis on meals, okay? I kind of like this about Luke, okay? He gives a, an emphasis on meals. Constantly, you see, Jesus is either in a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal, okay? Jesus, uh, he, the hobbits had nothing on him, Okay? So, Tolkien says, you know the reputation of hobbits. Um, if you're familiar with Tolkien, in The Fellowship of the Ring, the prologue, uh, Tolkien says this about hobbits, okay? Some of you are tracking with me, some of you not so much, all right? He says this, he sa- in describing the characteristics of one of them, he says, and, they la- and laugh they did, and eat, and drink, and often, and heartily, being fond of simple jests at all times, and of six meals a day when they could come across them. And so they had nothing on Jesus. Here we have a celebratory Savior who lingers with his guests at the table, so much so that the Pharisees earlier in Luke chapter 7 verse 34 accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton. And so uh, think think upon this, Christian, that your God is not one that is so far uh, off that he comes to you in your moment of need only, but you have a Father who welcomes you to the table and then wants to linger with you. And so Jesus has come to welcome everyone to the table in celebration. He eagerly awaits and he seeks to linger in celebration. He's not one to leave the party at 7 o'clock, okay? The only ones who would be left out are those who didn't need God, whose righteousness was found in their ability to make comparisons like the Pharisees here. And here's the tragic truth of the matter. as they, It was only those who stood at a distance and who were able to say to themselves, at least I'm better than that person. At least we're better off than those people. And when our righteousness is bound up in those type of statements, then we actually miss Jesus' offer of grace to us. You see, the Pharisees were baffled that he even drew near to sinners. But they had already, but Jesus had already answered them in this. In Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, he tells them, it's not those who are well that need physicians, but those who are sick. He says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What doctor, what physician would be a good doctor and physician if they never saw and never were around sick people? Would kind of be missing their purpose, right? And Jesus says, like any good physician, I must be around sick people. For this is my purpose. This is why I came. But apparently these were just too sick for the Pharisees. But the sad irony of it all is that they themselves were missing that they indeed were sick sinners in need of mercy as well. But their sickness was ever more subtle and dangerous because it was bl- they were blinded to it. They had seen themselves as not as needy as those that Jesus was among. And so, yet, look at Paul. As an example, Paul, uh, whose resume as a religious leader, is, he claims to be a Pharisee of Pharisees. Pharisee being the most conservative uh, um, kind of pillar or, or category, class of religious leader in that time. He was the elite of the elite when it came to religious leadership. Yet he came to realize his need and describes it this way. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners of whom I am the foremost. For this, friends, is where true mercy is found. The foremost of sinners, this man right here, This is where Paul found this grace. And so as Tim Chester in his helpful little book, A Meal with Jesus says, in Jesus' meals, he welcomes the marginal and at the same time confronts the self-righteous and self-reliant. In a meal, he does this. And so here's the application for you and I. Because... As those of us who are probably raised up in church or those who of us are regular attenders of church, and I myself included, are probably more likely to be included in the religious people. But I am one of those. And the thing that I've noticed about my own heart and what is seen in this, I believe in Jesus' is getting out getting here, is religious people don't like to be around messy people. You don't like it because there's something about it that causes us to acknowledge something we don't want to acknowledge about ourselves. You see, it exposes and confronts our own messiness. You see, we become good at being fugitives to reality. We've become well acquainted with keeping our messiness at bay and distancing ourselves from it. putting up a persona in the same way that we've become good at setting ourselves distancing ourselves from messy people and keeping them at a distance keep the skeletons in the closet long enough we may tell ourselves and maybe we'll even forget they're there but they're still there if we really acknowledge it we've tried to set them out of our peripheral vision and yet they're still there How piercingly accurate Jesus' statements are here is that it is often us that are the most blind to our own sin sickness. And we are the ones who are often more desperate in need of the good physician while we sit and watch others come receive it with joy. And so Jesus then changes to interrogate the offended parties. Jesus is the master at dealing with uh, conflict, right? Instead of dealing with it directly, he indirectly deals with it directly. Well, let me tell you a story, he says, right? And he's he's masterful at this. And here's what he wants to say. He says, I've come to seek and save the lost. That's my whole purpose in the... The point of the parable that he gives is this. What owner, if they were to lose something, doesn't strive that it might be found? There is more rejoicing, he says, over the thing being found, the recovery of the lost, than the found. And so I want to give you two pictures uh, of these two parables that Jesus tells, that give us a picture of... The salvation of the lost. And they illustrate to us how it is that Jesus cares for sinners. How is it that Jesus is a friend to sinners in this case? And the first one is found in the very first parable. The parable of the lost sheep. And that is this. Jesus giving special attention to this. That God takes care of all but gives particular care to the lost. He gives particular care to the lost. He gives tender care to the lost. Noticed, notice in this passage his intentionality and his tenderness. We, note it, we find that the sheep are not representative of just literal sheep. This is not a literal story, but it is a, it is a parable. Again, right? It's illustrating something else. The sheep stand for something And later on, he goes on to explain in verse 7 that these are, the sheep are sinners who have been joined into his flock. The one sheep is the straying sheep, the sinner. And Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out to tenderly bring in the wayward. But notice the shepherd's mindfulness here. He is mindful of the missing one. In the midst of all of the flock that he has responsibility over. And he goes after it in persistence and tender care. And so the shepherd tenderly cares for his sheep. Taking it up on his shoulders and carrying it out and rejoicing all the while. And then what? He throws a party. He throws a celebration. So here's the the truth of this for us today is that God has all this responsibility of upholding the universe and everything else. And yet, in the midst of the responsibility of caring for the masses, he is mindful of you, wherever you might be. In your wandering, in your despair, your anxieties, wherever you may be, he is mindful of you, perhaps even in the religious leaders, who, again, the sad irony of the fact that they were, he was more mindful of of where they were, their own condition than they were. They were seeking to push that aside. He's mindful of wherever you are. He's not too occupied with the many to take notice of you, the one, and I. And he seeks with persistence to bring you in. He rejoices over the restored one. And so as Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, To identify the true nature of the sheep, it says this, We are all like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray, for we have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And see, we see the identity of the sheep here following in the line of the Old Testament is this, it's each and every one of us turning after our own way and turning Away from the Lord And yet Jesus is the Lamb of God who came and gave His life to save the sheep and to cleanse us from sin. Notice in this text, it's the shepherd who goes and what? doesn't lead the lamb out, the sheep out in its own power, but takes them upon his shoulders and carries them out in his own strength. This is what Jesus did when He came to give his life to carry us, to rescue us, to cleanse us from sin. But notice also, Jesus is the good shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. He goes off to find the one. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 12, describe this. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, Triple reference there to pronoun, right? Me. Hey, just in case you missed it, I'm going to come. God in the flesh, I will come to search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. You see, this shepherd is not just the one who came to give his life that forgiveness might be found, but he is God himself who's come as the good shepherd to seek and save the lost. And so in the same image that we have of Jesus lingering at the table with restored sinners and outcasts, here all of heaven now joins in God's rejoicing over the one repentant sinner who comes in. Here God invites us to join him in his joy. He not only welcomes you to the table, but lingers with you as a beloved one. Yet it is only the self-reliant and the religious who stand on the edge of the party, never entering in. People watching and playing the game of comparisons is more of the... Standard of their righteousness. Believing themselves to be better off when actually they're worse off because they fail to acknowledge the reality of their own state of destitution and need of the good Savior. This is the picture we have of Jesus seeking tenderly, intentionally. For the one. Second, the second image we get is found in the, the second parable, the parable of the lost coin. And here Luke is emphasizing, or here Jesus and Luke are emphasizing that God diligently seeks the joy of your salvation. Here he's emphasizing the value of the sinner. In the first parable, he's emphasizing the method at which he's mindful of the sinner. But here we Here we see how diligent he is to seek out the sinner, to seek out the lost. And so the second parable illustrates the joy of recovering something of great value and the diligence of the one seeking it. And so although, again, we have a woman in this occasion who's lost her coin. And again, it's not a literal story about a literal woman who lost a literal coin. The coin is symbolic of a sinner, a lost sinner, who's been restored by the one diligently seeking after them. And so, although having ten already, the woman goes to what? Great lengths to recover the one. She Notice what she does. She lights a lamp, turns all the lights on in the house, right? She sweeps the whole house. Maybe it fell on the floor. She seeks it diligently, he goes on to say. So in today's language, it might be this. Pull all the couch cushions off. Look under the rug. Or if you're me, check all your pockets and also the washing machine, because that's usually where something lost finds its way with us. Or find my iPhone. That one I've had to pull out a few times as well. But seeking with such diligence, we see here. And this is the value expressed upon the sinner that God is diligently seeking after you. Wherever you may be, and he's not only just mindful of you, but he's diligently seeking you with all that he is, and he eagerly awaits you to rescue and restore you to fellowship with him. And so friend, whether you're a tax collector or a Pharisee or a religious leader or the woman of the night, woman of the city here, that one sinner is you and me today. And so the question is, will you stand at a distance? Will you stand on the boundary and not enter the party? Will you stand at the boundary and not... Receive this welcome of the Savior, for he is eager to await your coming. He is eager for you, he's expectant of you, and he longs to linger in celebration of your return. That he might carry you if you turn and trust him. So as the worship team returns, Jesus is the friend of sinners who draws near to restore the lost and wayward to repentance. And so Jesus awaits you, sinner. He looks forward to rejoicing over your coming. He's mindful of your every wandering. And yet he's come to bring you in and lingers in celebration when you return. And so the question for for us this morning is, will we come? Will we receive this good news of joy? Or will we be content to stand on the fringes? And so whether you are, you find yourself in the scenario of the tax collectors and the sinners, Jesus is not turned off by you. You are not too far gone and festering in your sins for him to desire and need you. But also, if you're the religious leader Will you not let self-reliance stand in your way of entering into God's joy this morning? Let's pray together.